here on the top of the hour, 98.1 WQAQ. Ben, how excited are you to be back in the studio with the Connecticut Huskies being national champions? Peter, it's it's an excellent feeling. It's bringing back days of the past with Kemba Walker and Shabazz Napier. It feels like the old days all over again, and I, I just love it. Glad that we can be here to talk all about it today. Yeah, let's let's roll the tape, shall we? We had to remind people last night, you know, where the basketball capital world is, and that stores Connecticut. That's hype. That's from the official UConn Twitter page. Very exciting night in stores on Sunday night. Or Monday night, I apologize. I'm sure Sunday was an exciting night, too. I, I'm, I'm just going to... I think that's a safe assumption. Uh, our first stat of the day, actually, is, is not a stat at all. Uh, the irony, right? But it's that, uh, the, the again, the 2023 National Championship winning UConn Huskies became the seventh team ever to win the Natty after being unranked in the preseason AP Top 25 poll. Now, based off voting, they were 27th. So it's not like they were completely out of nowhere. They were a top 27 team instead of a top 25 team. Uh, so watching this team all year, Ben, how improbable has this run been? Uh, it's been pretty improbable, especially after what happened uh, in the month of January, uh, because I don't think a lot of people realized that, you know, UConn, uh, was in a rough stretch in the Big East uh, during January. And believe it or not, of course, in the you know the first game that I went to see in basically six and a half years, uh, of course, it was against a St. John's team that uh, hardly sniffed the later rounds of the Big East tournament. Um, and they ended up going in there and beating up on UConn 65-54. Uh, uh, let's let's have the mic on this. Yeah. You, you were pretty unlucky with that, Ben. One game to pick, uh, and it's a sure bet. You were at home. It's the XL, not Campbell, but it, still. Yeah, it, it was awful. And you know, Jordan Hawkins, um, you know, had thirty-one points in that game, and he was literally the only source of offense. Adama Sonogo was like a soft serve ice cream cone. You know, he was not being physical at all uh, during the month of January, really. And it's just incredible to see how far this team. Has transformed since then because it, it almost feels like it was a completely different team. I was watching that team against St. John's in January, and I was like, no shot th- these guys even get out of the first weekend in the NCAA tournament if they keep playing like this. And <laughs> I t- it's just something about March, and it's something about the tournament that, you know, it, it just fuels a team, you know, when we least expect it. And that's exactly what happened with UConn. I mean, it's, it's it's amazing to me that this team never lost a game outside the Big East yeah. this year. Like, that is just phenomenal. I, that's really amazing. Well, it really did seem like the team took a turn there around the middle of Big East play. Again, um, they lost 6 of 8, uh, including, again, that pretty much that St. John's loss, I think, rubbed it in. Because you split against... Um, Boy, I don't, I don't have it up anymore. You split against Creighton. You split against St. John's. You were swept by Xavier. Um, so I, I, there were a lot of question marks about this about this team. And we all know how strong of a conference the Big East is. But when you start off, I believe it was 14-0? 14-0? Yeah, you start off 14-0 and you look unbeatable. And then when you skid that hard, it's hard to think that you'll get back to that place. Now, they ended the regular season well. They rebounded. Um, 
uh, rebounding in, in this case, not not the actual technical term. Um, uh, but then in the Big East tournament, they lose to Marquette, uh, so they don't even make it through the Big East tournament, and so then they get that four seed, which I thought, you know, all things considered, you know, they're the Ken Palm darlings. Um, but given their their record, um, I thought a four seed actually wasn't wasn't awful. They maybe could be a three seed. Um, I don't know what overall four seed they were. If they're in the lower half of that, yeah, they were the top overall, I believe. Top overall in the fourth. Okay, so yeah. that that means they'd be tenth or sorry, thirteenth in the country. Um, I don't know. It it seemed fair, but to be able to then turn that around again and be a juggernaut. And the consensus best team in the country, no doubt. And then forecasting ahead to next year, they're, are, they're already number one in a lot of people's projections yeah. because we're going to see a lot of this team back. Uh, likely Adama Sonogo, although it really depends on his NBA draft forecast. He's not really an a, a NBA prospect because he's undersized no. at center. He doesn't have spacing. He uh, he does make timely blocks, but I wouldn't call him a plus defender. Uh, he's not great at putting the ball on the floor. He's not a an exceptional playmaker. Uh, but for college, I mean, he's dominant. And so then it's Andre Jackson, who I think his play throughout the tournament will certainly rise him up draft boards. And if he's at the combine, then people will fall in love with that athleticism. But you're still looking at maybe a high second round pick. And then Jordan Hawkins, likely a, a middle of the first, maybe late lottery or early or early non-lottery around that 15 range. So you're going to have this core back, and that kind of gets us to our next stat here. Uh, there have only been seven back-to-back champions all time. Uh, seven schools, rather, because uh, we all know UCLA's dominant run with John Wooden is sort of the outlier. Of course, if we're going through these schools, uh, 1945 to 46, Oklahoma A&M, uh, that's uh, also known as Oklahoma State, uh, 1948 to 49, Kentucky, 1955 to 56, San Francisco. I don't know if you heard uh, of Bill Russell. He's the guy who who led those teams. He's pretty good at winning. Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't heard of that guy before. Bill Russell? Doesn't really ring a bell, no. Yeah, I don't know who it's from. Uh, 1961 to 62, Cincinnati, uh, 1964 to 65, UCLA, and also 1967 to 73. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to touch that one, personally. Could have been better. Yeah, I could have gone in. Yeah, they, they, they lost those those one in between, one or two in between. Uh, 1991 to 92, Duke. And then, of course, the Al Horford, Joakim Noah, uh, Corey, Corey Brewer, I believe. Yes, it was. Corey Brewer. Yeah, uh, fueled uh, 06, 07 Florida Gators. Gosh. Wow. So, and, and this is since the, the tournament's only been around since 1939. So, could the Connecticut Huskies be the next team, the eighth school ever, to win back-to-back? On the men's side, of course. Well, it, it's it's tough to say that at this point in time because um, we, we don't really know anything about the landscape of college basketball yet for next year. That's why it's always fun to go through these way-too-early rankings. Like, I, I get it. It makes a lot of sense, but... We also have to wait and see where we're at in terms of, you know, all these other power conferences. And, you know, let's not forget the Big East is going to get a lot more eyeballs, especially with Rick Pitino uh, back at the helm with St. John's and Ed Cooley moving over to Georgetown, hopefully looking to transform that program. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would not say that it's impossible. Of course not. I mean, UConn's bringing back a lot of this core, as you mentioned, Peter, and I, there's no real reason, you know, not to say that they can go out there and win it again. It's just 
it's tough for me to say that right now just because we don't really know um you know who who's coming back to what team in not just the Big East but also like the Big 12 which was a dominant conference this year the Big 10 that had so many wide open teams we we just don't know enough yet but I definitely think they are among the favorites. I will definitely say that and agree with the uh, the odds makers because as of right now at BetMGM they are listed at eleven to one to repeat, and I think the mm. only ones behind them were UCLA at thirteen to one, and I want to say Kansas was uh, listed at mm. thirteen to one. Yeah. Um, well, again, it's it's tough to say. Georgetown, St. John's, both should be better. I wouldn't expect a lot from them in their first year under the new helm, though. It, it's still going to take it's going to take a couple of years for them to get their guys in. I mean, we saw the same thing with Dan Hurley. Uh, we had Jalen Adams and, and Christian Vital and Altery Gilbert, uh, Isaiah Whaley, uh, Tyler oh. Pauly. Uh, those were a lot of guys who were stalwarts to the program uh, from the Ollie era. And Altery Gilbert, yeah, you like that one? Um, so it took took a little bit for them to 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 get through, and they're they're all good players um, of varying um, skill sets and um, varying contributions to winning. But then once you get James Booknight in and Jalen Gaffney and uh, Adama Sanogo and, and Andre Jackson, once you get those guys in, well, Jalen Gaffney maybe not as to the caliber, you know, a cook a cook. It, those are the guys you recruit and you're you're recruiting because you think they can be great fits to your system you believe in the character you believe in the upside um in fact they when they were recruiting book night this was sort of i don't know if this was previously known knowledge but uh ahead of the final four um it was revealed that they were trying to recruit book night and isaiah wong of miami because they wanted them to be the future backcourt they liked Wong's size and, and his playmaking and his shooting. And actually, at the time they were being recruited, now it's September of 2019 or 18, I want to say, um, Book Night was in stores and Wong was in Miami on their visit. Same weekend, I believe September 9th, I want to say. This was an article from, I think, CT Insider. Then the next weekend, they flipped. Wong was up in Connecticut. And book night was down in Miami. And so it almost happened. Book committed first, uh, but I think Gaffney committed shortly thereafter. I don't think the Gaffney commitment had anything to do with Isaiah. Um, But still, what could have been? And I had no idea until the Final Four that Jalen Gaffney was on Florida Atlantic. I I I really didn't know. So I was confused why he transferred in the offseason because his playing time did dwindle once RJ Cole, you know, assumed that starting mantle. But I saw a path to minutes, and so many people left, right? Because, again, you had Cole uh, leave for for the pros. You had Tyrese Martin leave for the NBA draft. Isaiah Whaley, uh, Tyler Pauly, uh, Cook transferred out. Um, Even uh, the guy on Providence, I can't think of his name. Uh, He he was a bench player for UConn, but he transferred to Providence. Um, I, I saw a path to playing time again. I don't. I forgot where he transferred because Florida Atlantic. It's again usually not a memorable school. No, it's not. Yeah, and he also his hair is different. He has the he has the full uh, like braids now, which he, he wasn't rocking at UConn. So it took took me a minute. 
Yeah, but uh, sorry, back to the, the long-winded point I'm making here. It's going to take a while for for St. John's and Georgetown to to get all their guys in and to develop the system that they want to develop. Now, the transfer portal certainly is going to help. Um, and Kim English has, I, I think you referenced this either last week or in some other medium, he's done a good job of being able to retain his own players and, and uh, Bryce Hopkins being at the forefront of that and being able to retain Pizzarell. I mean, you could have just seen them all all take the Amtrak down and, and go play in D.C., but they didn't. Right. Yeah, it's going to take a couple years. Marquette is still there. Xavier, uh, you expect probably Villanova to get better uh, in their second year of the post-Jay Wright era. But uh, it, it's just the case. Uh, what do you see out of out of some of these Big 12 teams like Kansas? Kansas is Big 12, right? Correct. Yeah. What do you see uh, the, of them out of next year? And, and maybe we talked how much how this is probably the best conference in college basketball if it's not the Big East. And what's the future of that conference looking ahead? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, conference realignment is going to be on in full swing uh, starting next year because all, all of a sudden – uh, we're going to have Houston and BYU jump and ship from the American, uh, and they're going to the Big 12. Actually, BYU is not in the American. I'm sorry. They're in, uh, they were in Gonzaga's conference. The WCC? West Coast. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the, uh, or the West Coast. It, it gets mixed, whatever people want to call it. So those two are going to go into the, uh, the Big 12. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw something. Isn't Florida Atlantic going to the American next year? Um, I, I'm pretty I can, sure I, can I saw fact that. Check you on that. I, I'm pretty sure FAU is headed to the American next year. I, I do remember seeing something about that. Um, so they're moving on. Who else? Somebody else is jumping um, as well. Oh, UCF is leaving the American. UCF is a... Uh, oh, and Cincinnati is? Oh, wow. The American is going to get really realigned then. Well, that's always been... What's been funny about the American, because I've been following it, because UConn used to be in it, is they, yeah. they have these individual programs uh, within that are very, very strong at certain things. UCF, their football, of course, they were the, you know, the the so-called national champions a couple years ago. Right. Uh, Houston in football and basketball. Cincinnati obviously had that big football run to the uh, two years ago. Two years ago? Yes, it was yeah, two years Led ago. by Sauce Gardner, correct? Correct. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they've had individual programs. And very, Desmond Ritter. Very, oh, uh, I forgot about Ritter. Yeah, um, Desmond Ritter, too. Yeah. Uh, they've had individual programs that have been very strong, but... It doesn't necessarily mean the American is a strong conference. It's not. Sure. It's, it's not a cohesive conference. No, They're all up and down the East Coast. Um, very, very annoying for travel and things. So uh, ultimately, a good thing is. Do you think the American is going to get like disbanded? Is is this conference going to exist in a couple of years? I I mean, it, especially with the loss of Houston now, I I think for basketball's sake, it, it's just going to keep going down the tubes. I mean, I, I don't see how the conference is going to stay together. Um, you know, if, if all these teams are just going to jump around. And th- the one that's still going to get me is that I hate having UCLA and USC joining the Big Ten. I think that's mm. the worst ones of the conference realignments because, you know, West Coast schools belong in the Pac-12. And yep. supposedly, speaking of that, San Diego State might be joining the Pac-12 in their absence. That hasn't been announced yet. but That'd be nice. It's possible. That'd be something. That that would help their recruiting process, too. Um but back to your original point, though, Peter, about all these other conferences, it's just going to be interesting to see how 
you know, these new teams mix into the competition? You know, is it going to be, you know, relatively easier for all of these schools that have already been in the Big 12? Like, are, are we going to see Kansas and Baylor and Iowa State and Kansas State all knock down these new teams coming in? Um, you know, and, and obviously, I think, by the way, speak, while I just mentioned Kansas State, it is absolutely criminal that Marquise Noel got left off the All-NCAA tournament team. Mm-hmm. I think that was a joke because this guy set the NCAA tournament single-game assists record. And 20, you're telling me right? we're going to take yeah. guys from the Final Four because they got the farthest. Like, are you kidding me? Like, what are we doing? Enough is enough and, with and this they Final got, Four Kansas bias. State got to the Elite Eight. It's not like they were... Exactly. They, it's not like they, they were... Exactly. It's not like he set the assist record in the round of 32 and lost. It's That would have been different. Yeah, they that got to the Elite Eight. It was still a, a great run. They arguably should have maybe beaten Florida Atlantic. Was... Yeah, I mean, Marquise Noel had one of the greatest single individual NCAA tournament runs in, in a good while that I can remember by himself. Uh, UConn had one of the best team runs, that's for sure. Certainly. Um, but it's just going to be interesting to gauge, though, the the uh, the level of competition next year. I, I, I'm really looking forward to it because the, the transfer portal, I'm all I'm all in 100 sure. percent on it just because that way it, you know, it allows these college kids to at least try and establish a sense of where they want to go in life. You know, I don't think a lot of people look at it from that angle and that. These guys are 19, 20, 21 years old, and they're trying to, you know, kickstart their lives and their careers in professional basketball. And, you know, I mean, 95% of these guys won't go to the NBA or, you know, all these other different Higher, higher than that. It's it's probably higher than that. It has to be. Um, but it, it's the transfer portal is going to help equal out, I think, the talent level in college basketball. And it's just going to make the product even more better. And... I will say, um, I think it was John Fanta who covers the Big East. He has Duke as his preseason number one next year. And that's interesting that's to see. a bold claim considering he's following this Connecticut team yeah. throughout the season. He had UConn at four. I know that. And he had Marquette at six. Maybe, maybe he just wants to give him a chip. Maybe he wants to be wherever. Where's the Final Four next year? Do you know? Uh, oh, that's a good question. For some actually. reason, I want to say it's Phoenix. Because that's right. UConn's not making a Final Four now until, you know, the next one in Texas. <laughs> um, Unfortunately. <laughs> oh, San Antonio. So we only got to wait till 2025 for that. Oh, okay. But Phoenix is next it year. It is Phoenix. All right. That's, Phoenix. That's, that'd be cool. Talking, or no, sorry, football would be at State Farm So, So Stadium. that means when Donovan Klingon is a junior in the 24-25 season. Alex Caravan, actually. I, him too, yeah. And that means they're all going to go to uh, to San Antonio and win another title in 2025. That's what's going to happen. Alamo Dome, right? Alamo yeah. Dome, right. yeah. Whew. And the, uh, the the one thing too about UConn, um, if you look at the uh, the final AP Top 25 poll, I because I wanted to pull up my, my list because I have every week's AP Top 25 poll. Yep. Uh, the the final rankings uh, in the regular season for these four teams, by the way, that went to the Final Four. UConn, 11. San Diego State, 20. Miami, 14. And Florida Atlantic, not ranked. Yeah, but it goes to show anything can happen in March. Yes, it does. Miami higher than I think people give them credit for because people are Miami out of nowhere. Yeah, sure, they're not a top three seed. No one was in the Final Four, but they're still 14th in the country. It's not insane. It's not crazy. 
a lot of people don't realize that Miami really did have a great season in the ACC. And the, really the sole reason why they weren't a three seed or a four seed in the NCAA tournament was partially due to their ACC tournament performance when they lost to Duke. But it was really when, you know, 7-20 and 20 Florida State marched in there and Matthew Cleveland drilled a buzzer beater. Uh, at the end of that game. And I think Miami was like a 13-point favorite or something. That was like during the middle of February. I remember that. Um, that that was really the sole reason why Miami's ranking uh, also got impacted. And th- this That trio of guards was amazing this year. Uh, Jim Laranega's uh, second-ever um, Elite Eight appearance, I believe, first Final Four. I, I don't think George Mason. No, wait, George Mason did get to the Final Four when he was there, so it was his second Final Four. But Nigel Pack, Isaiah Wan, and Jordan Miller were three phenomenal shooting guards uh, this year for Miami. And UConn, I, I can't believe they played that well against Miami. Holding them to under sixty was incredible, and and their twenty four points was the lowest in a first half all season. And I mean, UConn's uh, win margin ended up at plus 120, which was just four points behind the 2015-16 Villanova Wildcats that capped it off in Houston with a Chris Jenkins shot. Yeah. Their win margin was plus 124. And mm. that, that believe it or not, I don't know what the all-time numbers were, but uh, Villanova's plus 124 um, is the single highest mark uh, for an NCAA tournament team since 2011. So I don't even know what the all-time numbers are. But still, UConn, the second-best win margin in a single NCAA tournament in the last 12 years. Yeah. Pretty wild. Uh, One thing I wanted to say uh, before we move on to our next topic and probably go to break here, uh, talking about the transfer portal, like you just said, uh, I think there's a lot that gets uh, analyzed about the transfer portal, about a guy wanting to move to another situation to get either more playing time or to play for a championship or maybe or maybe it's NIL fueled, whatever it is. And I think that is not painting the whole picture. Again, like you said, there's so much more to this outside of strictly um, playing time and like NIL deals. Um, sometimes just a, a certain school isn't isn't the right decision. And, and these kids are, are committing to these schools at 17 years old a lot of the time. Um, you know, the, things can change, situations can change, and the school they committed to to play for, you know, possibly four years or more, um, is no longer the, the right decision. And having these kids be able to play right away and not having them sit out a year, um, not penalizing them for, for you know, making a decision that may make more sense at this point in their life, um, I thought the penalizing was always, it didn't make sense to me. And while it's created a lot more movement, um, for better or worse, um, you know, not all, the, all, not all the movement is fueled in, in the same way. And to be able to see these kids that transferred to somewhere like UConn after being in a school like San Diego or Eastern Carolina and, and play a big part on a national stage and p- play critical parts that Tristan New and Joey Calcaterra did, uh, it's fantastic. And, you know, I feel so happy for those guys. Uh, so we're going to come back from break with a little baseball update. I mean, the, the ball is moving quick, and I mean that in terms of the these games are getting shorter. And, and some of these other uh, rule changes for 2023 have had real instant impact. We're going to talk about the numbers and what they mean and, and really what to take of it. And then in the NBA, they have a new collective bargaining agreement that kind of just snuck its way in the Final Four weekend on Saturday. 
And I think not a lot of people are talking about it unless you're one of the nerds on NBA Twitter like myself. And they, these are going to have some real ramifications that when you see some of this stuff happening in July, you're going to scratch your head and say, how did this happen? But we're going to tell you why and how that all went down late Saturday night. And bonus, I'm going to throw out my best play for the Masters Tournament this week in golf. Ooh, a little golf action. That's first on the show. It's not in the description, so a little bonus, a little bonus golf action from Ben. All that coming up right here in one minute. Back from the break here, baseball. Uh, if you have not been following, uh, the New York Times reporting that through 35 games over three days, the average nine-inning Major League Baseball game was two hours and 41 minutes. That's 23 minutes faster than the average nine-inning game last season. In addition, batting average on balls in play, known as BABIP for all, for all you uh, stat- uh, sabermetric folks at home, is up from 292 to 310. So that, that's going to pay dividends from the shift changes. And stolen base attempts are up from 1.3 a game to 1.6 a game. Not a huge jump, but most importantly, the success rate has rose from 74% to 87.5%. So a couple of things here, Ben. Whether you like them or not, it's definitely clear these rules have had an immediate effect on baseball through the first series of the season. And seeing the rules in action, has it changed your initial thoughts on these rule changes? Not necessarily. Uh, I think it's honestly kind of improved uh my view uh on these new rules because i always had you know a few doubts about them uh specifically the pickoff rule the pickoff rule was the one that was you know killing me uh specifically because i was like really we're gonna have two throws over to uh first base and only i forget what the uh what the exact term is but it's two uh disengagement disengagements that's the word yes you're right uh, yeah, and I don't know. I was a little bit wary of that in the beginning, but honestly, I think you know the pitchers have adapted that. They're they're clearly trying to move on and forget about runners at first base, and and honestly, that's why I think we're seeing more uh, success in terms of stolen bases because the succession rate. ESPN showed a graphic over the first four days of the season, which was through Sunday, and that. Um, 50 games, the average game time, as you said, was cut down basically about a half an hour. Uh, And the stolen base success rate increased from 65% last year over the first four days to 83%. And I think the bigger bases are just – I think that was a great addition because, you know, three inches, it sounds like it's a big deal. It's like, oh, my God, three full inches between bases. But in some ways it's not. I mean, it's going to allow for more action on the base paths, and that's what the league wants, and that's what they wanted to, you know, enforce. But the the problem I'm having right now, and we actually just saw one example yesterday, is that it's the first real big situation where the pitch clock is an issue. Manny Machado uh, in San Diego in the first inning yesterday against uh, Arizona, Zach Gallon was on the mound. Uh, Machado's in a 3-2 count with two outs, bottom of the first. There's nobody on base, but still. Um, he isn't engaged with Gallon by the time the pitch clock hits eight seconds. And Ump jumps right out of the box, calls him pitch clock violation, strike three. That's the end of the inning. And this is where the league has to be careful uh, in the postseason because we're going to need to find a way to not – have the umps make this their own show because 
I think the ups are getting a little too excited when the clock hits eight seconds and, yep. you know, they're not, you know, if they see the batter is just about to be engaged, but he's not, they're going to be like, all right, violation, eight seconds, not engaged. It's like, you know, we got to clean that up. Yeah, we, that, the, that's got to get cleaned up. And I know that's going to come over time. It's the first week of the season, but th- this is one fine line that I don't know if Major League Baseball really thought thought this over. Um, and honestly, I, I don't think there's really been like any extra inning games yet over the first week of the season. Not that I've seen, but there's um, been uh well, there's a 10 inning guardians age 12, 11 game oh, right, on, uh, right. I believe Sunday night or okay, Monday that, night. That was extra innings. Yeah. You're Monday right. Monday night. Uh, but no, not a lot, not a lot. That, that's the one big one, but like, um, the, yeah, the ghost runner rule to me, I, I like I said, I, I don't know if I've said it on the show already or not, but I, I think it's disgusting. I, can you, uh, can you remind the viewers, uh, sorry, viewers, uh, listeners at home, uh, what that means? Oh, the uh, the ghost runner rule, yes. Uh, it's the idiocy of Major League Baseball in which they <laughs> decided, let's just throw a random runner at second base to start extra innings, you know, because why not, right? Speed up the game, all that. You know, this is where they the league had to realize that the pitch clock is already in place, so why the heck do we even need the ghost runner rule? That That's, the, that's the a good that point. I, I didn't really get. think about it like that. Yeah, exactly. See, that's what I'm saying. Nobody thinks before they act. And the problem with the ghost runner rule, I, I don't have a problem with it. It's just the fact that we're going to jump right to it when we flip to the 10th inning. These are Major League Baseball players that are used to playing 180 days of the season. And, um, you know, they have been out on the field for three, three and a half, even four hours. And who knows what for a doubleheader. So the fact that we're going to just jump to a ghost runner rule right away after nine innings just it, it baffles me because you know the chances of a runner getting to second base in an inning let alone i think is like what 40 percent it's something like that it's actually not even 50 percent. and it's there's been so many games where i've seen uh top the 10th they'll score the run from second and that's the only run they score in the bottom of the 10th the home team will score just the guy from second so it's it's a net wash it's a waste and it's just you're just right. the, I think they're employing the belief more runs is more fun and that's why the league really should have you know at least implemented the ghost runner rule after the 12th inning that's what I said you know think yeah, about it sure. you, have, you have a five minute overtime in like hockey a five minute overtime in basketball but you know I mean then again basketball is just you know sudden death overtimes it's no shootout like hockey or whatever but no but still it's like you have a little buffer like that if you think about it three innings of normal extra innings if needed it's a third of a game right like wouldn't that be a fair like equilibrium in terms of you know it's like you have a five minute overtime basketball hockey and you know a 10 minute overtime in the nfl it's like why not have a buffer in baseball it's funny because three innings is you know a third of of a major league game so that's more than fair because you did a third of a basketball game that would that would be a 16 minute overtime that's true yeah so and and think about this too about my point with the pitch clock all right so we're saying that game averages are what did you say was it two hours 41 minutes two hours 41 minutes uh down 23 minutes okay so so let's do the math you have 241 and you divide that by nine innings so if you play an extra three innings the first third, what is that, about 50 minutes, right? You're talking about... Six, 50, 55 minutes you're ta- for three innings. You're talking right? like 16 minutes, roughly 15 and two-thirds minutes per inning. 
Okay. Yeah. So we're looking at an extra, you know, maybe 45 minutes for like the opening three. Oh, sorry. No, no, sorry. I did the math wrong. I apologize. Oh, well, that's okay. Uh, uh, about 18 minutes. Oh, about 18. Oh, okay. Well, still, we're looking at about an average of like, you know, 50, 55 minutes if we did, if they had, if teams had to go three full extra innings. And I mean, realistically, like if the average game time last season was 3.08, I mean, and I think the, realistically, the average team probably has about what, maybe 10 to 12 extra inning games in a season. It's about a dozen probably. Sure, probably. It's probably something around that. I mean, wouldn't it be okay to, like, stretch that and, you know, let there be a three-and-a-half-hour game still? I don't know. I, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just talking at a wall because Rob Manfred is a wall and he doesn't, you know, really listen to <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah. I'm surprised that, you know, the league even went through with uh, some of these rules. But um, it's it's good for baseball. And, and I don't care what all the boomers and the traditionalists will say. Like, it, it, it is, you know— and they're all about well it's it's all about the scenery the build-up well yeah but you can still get that and like i said if if you want to keep up with the gen z audience you have you have to adapt to finding ways to keep the action flowing and this is exactly what the pitch clock does it creates a flow but peter here's the thing the postseason when it comes around we have to extend the pitch clock by five seconds Mm. Like, this is something right, that's been discussed. People right are wondering. Now, right now, it's 15 empty bases, 20 runner on. It's got to go to 2025. 2025. Because yeah. otherwise, we're going to have these players, you know, t- kind of soaking it up as they walk to the plate. And they're going to, you know, try and, like, get, you know, more prepared for each at bat. And that's why if they expand the pitch clock by five seconds... Give them an extra time out as well that they can use. Look, no one, no one's complaining that postseason baseball is too long. That's right. never been. Once you get to the postseason, because it's, it's all it's, it's all part of the drama, the build up. It, it it's part of part of it. It's intrinsically tied to it. One more thing I wanted to to say about the the uh, some of the picture batter violations. Uh, the similar thing to Machado happened to Rafael Devers on I believe he was opening day. The situation I, I believe he's bombed the eighth inning chance for the Red Sox to it was either tie it or, or bring them one run closer. And and Rafael Devers, he he gets to, it's eight seconds on the pitch on the pitch clock. He looks up at the picture. The picture's not set. So Devers is like, oh well the picture's not ready, so I'm good. But then because Devers goes back into whatever he is, like like swinging his bat again or adjusting something he is called the third strike because he wasn't ready. Well, he was ready. He could have been ready. The picture wasn't ready. So he was ready to take. So is he just supposed to stand motionless there for like five, six seconds in the stance until the picture decides to wake up? I don't know. And again, Jim Palmer, the uh, obviously the, the all-time great picture, but also the color analyst for the Orioles broadcast on Masson, he was saying how that's bogus and that's coming from the opposition and it, it's not really right for baseball and fans don't like to see their favorite player get called out for a violation. I agree. I think it, it's silly. I think there needs to be a little more, you know, uh, of a gray area. I don't think they need to, it needs to hit eight seconds and boom. And now I, I believe what, how it works is that the, uh, the umps, I think they, I, I, I want to say this is correct. 
they have an earpiece or something like that, that when it hits that eight seconds and there's a violation, they get like a buzz. So they're told to make the call. Um, I don't know. I think it, it should be a little more up for grabs. It's not like the, the pitch would have been made in time. There would have been no issues on that exact play. And then that's when we get into the issue. Like, is that good for the game? Overall, it's speeding up, but it's these individual things that can turn away a fan that can that can take away from a game that has improved and i think a lot of people are coming back to baseball so uh in terms of the postseason thing definitely i think they should expand that time um just uh everything else should stay i I don't think they should magically bring the shift back for the playoffs that's fundamental that's fundamentally changing the way we're playing the game i think that that'd be dumb um but over to the NBA real quick here. We're going to get to the NBA before we head to break. Uh, again, like I was saying earlier, new collective bargain agreement on Saturday. Here are some of the highlights. Not all of the highlights. There were a lot of changes. I'm not going to get into some of the tax apron stuff, and now that's going to change the uh, taxpayer mid-level exception and and, uh, and buyout candidates and how that works. There's some changes there. You can look it up on your own leisure. But... Here, here are some of the changes. So aside from Supermax extensions, veteran players could previously only receive a 20% increase in salary for the first year of a new extension under the now nicknamed. It's not official. It's not the bird rule or the rose rule. This is a nickname for now. The Jalen Brown rule, that percentage has now increased to 40%, which means players like DeJounte Murray or Jalen Brown, they can be offered market level extensions without needing to hit free agency because they outperformed their rookie scale extensions um also all rookie scale extensions can now be five-year deals previously only max rookie extensions could be five-year deals kind of weird um next one about trades teams cannot trade cash in trades nor can they take back more salary than they send out in a trade um just for some context if this rule had been in place at the time james harden would have never been a net Phoenix uh, Phoenix would not have been able to acquire Kevin Durant at this year's trade deadline, and Steve Ballmer wouldn't have been able to pony up to acquire Norman Powell and Robert Covington from Portland last year. And the third one, which uh, some I would say would uh, has drawn the most controversy, uh, players must now play 65 games to be eligible for major individual awards, and all NBA teams will now be positionless. I'm not sure if this is in effect for this season because... Uh, I just don't think it is uh, because I haven't really heard people talk about it Um, because, for instance, uh, uh, Supermax extensions will still be tied with all NBA selections or individual awards. So under the 65-game rule, the following players wouldn't be eligible for awards this season. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, Steph Curry, John Moran, Anthony Davis, Davis, Damian Lillard, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Devin Booker, Jaron Jackson Jr., Paul George, and possibly Joel Embiid and Jimmy Butler. Uh, and the reason I'm saying I'm not sure if it's in effect for this season is because if you look at the odds, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. is still uh, this, the close favorite for Defensive Player of the Year at minus 130 uh, with, I believe, Brooke Lopez. He's trailing at plus 105, if I'm correct, because if he plays the rest of this every game for the rest of this season jaron will get to 64 games played meaning he would not be eligible for defensive player of the year but that that has not been reflected in the odds so i have a feeling it'll be in effect next year so for i'm i'll just get my thoughts here real quick the 65 game marker 
is generally a good thing. I think this is the only way, not the only way, but this is a way that they could try to reduce on load management and you could get the best players to play in more games because whether they say it or not, these players still are going to want to win awards. And because there is that financial aspect of Supermax is still being in t- still being tied to these awards, uh, th- these players are going to want to play in big games. Now, I think it's going to be funky, though, if, if players are hurt or let's say they hit around, again, 61, 62 games. We talked about this last week, Ben about if there should be a, like a hard line in the sand and they decided on 65. Um, these all-NBA teams could end up looking very, very strange <laughs> in the coming years. And then if, if uh, that ends up being the case, that means Supermax extensions could be very, very weird because someone could make a team that would be less deserving because they were eligible due to the games requirement then they're eligible for a Supermax and maybe they're not a Supermax type player, but they're worthy of that contract. Um, and then I, the Jalen Brown rule makes a lot of sense. Um, I, it allows markets to retain players. Um, Pizzarell's, um, they got a good deal on their first uh, rookie extension and because they outperformed it, they, they're almost getting penalized for it. The only way for them to retain it is for them to hit the open market. Um, what are your thoughts on these changes, Ben? Well, it's it's pretty interesting, uh, especially the sixty-five game threshold. That that's the one that um, is obviously drawing my attention the most uh, in this new CBA, and I think that's the best. That's the best approach that the NBA probably could have taken to to do this because, you know, obviously they've tried with fewer back-to-backs, spreading out schedules, and all that to allow for you know uh, uh, more of these star players to take the court every night because th- there's obviously a lot of back-to-backs that we don't see um Giannis or LeBron or Jokic or other guys like that play all the time Celtics Celtics playing back-to-back tonight they lost in Philly a, a tough close that game last, tough last, last night. night and then they played tonight in in Boston against Toronto no Jalen Brown last night don't know if uh, granted if he's gonna play one of the games you'd think he would play last night um but very strange um and you know there you could see a situation where tatum doesn't play tonight and brown plays tonight um uh, just i wanted to i wanted to get this in apologize for cutting off but that's okay why don't we just reduce the schedule to 75 games or 70 games 72 games a lot of people have said this you can basically eliminate the back-to-backs if you get rid of five to seven to ten games from a schedule and if you get rid of the back-to-backs, players are probably going to be fine anyways. If they play 60 games, but it's a 72-game schedule, it's probably not an issue. You're still going to play, like, whatever it is, like 83 82% of the games. Yeah, and that's a great point. I was actually going to bring that up um, as well because the, the, the NBA really does not need 82 games. Um I think 72 or 74 is probably the ideal amount um, because at least then that way you cut down um, because the the season starts at the end of October realistically. You know, I think if you align it with like the start of the college basketball season, the first week of November, you know, then you're getting um, you're getting more eyeballs because it's like, well, basketball starting on both ends 
you know, you have the NBA and college starting at the same time. That way, you could start the season first week of November, just a little bit later for these guys. And then you'll still have, you know, your Christmas games, your Martin Luther King Day, all those big standalone NBA days usually. And I think you could get the All-Star break more in the actual halfway point of the season instead of right yeah. now it's around that two-thirds mark. Yeah, and I don't know where the traction is at with the uh, the mid-season tournament idea that's been thrown it around. It seems still pretty... Uh, I, I think it's it's still something Adam Silver is leaning towards. Obviously, it didn't get ratified. It would have to get ratified be. through the collective bargaining agreement. Right. But I still think it could be on the horizon. I it's It's got to be. I think that would be phenomenal for the league because then that way, you know, so uh, if you did that, if you had the midseason tournament. Run that in December. Yeah, you could still you could still have a 72-game schedule and then run the tournament in the middle of the season. Like have every game televised, uh, maybe like, I don't know, cash incentives probably, stuff like that, you know, uh, for grabs. Obviously the winning team would get a trophy. Uh, you know, there would be some sort of incentive, I think. Um, obviously for winning teams in that in-season tournament. But that's going to help draw interest in the league because, I mean, I I know that you love the NBA, Peter. Like, And, and I like it, but like I'm not sitting down and like watching a game outside of the Knicks, really, uh, you know, basically for a good chunk of the regular season. It's really, you know, a... After the holidays, you know, like I'll watch the Christmas games and then throughout some of January. And then after the Super Bowl, you know, I, I like flip over to college for like five, six weeks. I, I keep tabs on the NBA and now it's like you hit the ground running. So it's just like an in and out. And that's what I feel like the average viewer probably is like the NBA casual fan because mm-hmm. I would consider myself more of a casual. But, um, you know, it, it, if you create an in-season tournament, I'll sit down and watch every game. You kidding? That'd be great uh, because then that way it's it's almost like what like what if I, I don't know how they would obviously do it, but I guess it would be some sort of like a March Madness type of setup in some ways. That is, they they were interviewing the athletic did I think it was the athletic they interviewed players at the All Star break and were were kind of gauged to them and how they would feel about that. A lot of players said that if it was a March Madness style, that that'd be really cool, that sort of one and done style. Um, but at the same time, not every team or not every player is going to take it the same way. But again, of course, if, if it has playoff implications, like let's say, I don't know, you're locked into a play-in spot at the minimum. I don't know. It, I, I, I'm really I'm not in a great place right now and trying to figure out what the logistics <laughs> of it would there, be. There's a lot of logistics with this, it looks yeah, like. Yeah, but I think there's a way where you can make it work for everyone and it, it can be beneficial for the fans. It won't be a huge burden on the players. Um, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, just one thing about coming from the fan perspective, and I am kind of like an NBA historian junkie. Um, what's really cool is looking through like all NBA teams or the awards winners throughout the years and, and how it can kind of give a, in a way, a snapshot of where the league is at. And what I'm afraid is going to happen is with this game limit, the 65 game mark that these players have to hit, you're going to have players that are clearly all NBA deserving and some of the best players and players who had the best seasons in the league that they had a nagging injury for a week. Maybe they sat out one or two games just to get geared up for the playoffs and they missed the mark by a game. Yeah. Look at this year. Giannis Antetokounmpo would not make an all NBA team. He's going to end up being top three in MVP, maybe two, maybe three. I still think after Embiid put in 52 last night, I think he, like you said, he locked it up then. Uh, 
But if if Giannis didn't make an All NBA team this season, then I'd be saying, why the hell are we doing this rule? He's clearly, if not the best player in the world, maybe the second. Again, this is a discussion that's useless. Everyone has different interpretations of who the best player in the world, how you define that, all that crap. But it would be absurd if Giannis Antetokounmpo was not on an All-NBA team. It would be a disservice to his season, his level of stardom. And then when you're looking back in, in, in you know, 20 years and you're saying, oh, wow, how did he not make... How do you not make All NBA team that that year? Or, or uh, Kevin Durant has the same number of All NBA teams as Giannis. I mean, so who's better or something? Or you know, whatever it is. Like this stuff matters to some, and it does have implications on the way we view players in the game and long term. And I think it's absolute crap if we're going to miss it by one or two games. That's why I didn't like having this line in the nice. sand. If you want players to play more games, have less games. Get rid of some of these back-to-backs because the back-to-backs they're 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 terrible on the body, especially some of these travel back-to-backs. And it's in the best interest of the team and the players sometimes to rest these guys and and have it affect possibly their salary and their awards and the way they will be viewed for generations. I think is 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 complete crap. Um, so mm-hmm. we're gonna get your master's pick right here after the break. And along with our stats star of the week, one thing I did want to mention, by the way, uh, before we uh, oh go ahead before we do go, I think that was a great point brought up by you because this is exactly right. If we have injuries, if we have players missing time um, for something other than load management, well, that, that that's the thing. And and, and honestly. Building off that point, if we're going to get this 65-game threshold, as much as it sounds good in terms of regulating load management, it almost feels like we're tightening the window on awards. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because we're not allowing for – because does this apply for everybody? So this 65-game eligibility is going to apply for, like, everyone, right? Like, no matter the situation? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, so, the, there's no. It, they're not looking at the report and saying left ankle management versus bronchitis or something. Yeah. So like, if I, I don't know, it just feels like if we have too much burnout and we have too much wear and tear on some of these guys, and they either like they really have to, you know, miss time. It, it just feels like we might be closing the window on some of the guys that you know ha- could have a breakout season. And perhaps just miss the threshold. I don't know. I'm just speaking to speak, but no, um, no, I think you're right. And we're making voters' jobs easier for no reason. Yeah, I know. The part of the job of a voter is you're looking at a guy and saying, okay, he played in 61 games, but I think his impact over the course of 61 games was more important than the guy who played 75 games. Body of work is a big deal when you look at voting and you're right this absolutely makes the voters jobs easier so it's going to be most this is the most interesting part i think of this new cba i'm i'm really curious to see how it's going to work out uh, with the nba but but please i'm silver let let's let's get a 72 game schedule get a mid-season tournament that way it'll make a lot more guys happier not to take a shot at your next but what could happen is you could see julius randall make an all nba team and Giannis Antetokounmpo not because Randall played in what seventy two games and and Giannis going to play in sixty three. I mean, that's complete saying. bogus. That's it's dumb. You're going to look at it and you're going to say, "How the hell did that happen? Um, what are we doing here?" I, I I think it's dumb. 
So what if they're positionless? That that you're going to see an All NBA first team in a couple of years with four point guards. Like, what are we doing? Oh, I am. I'm not very happy. But we're going to come back with with uh, a very happy stat star of the week. We'll be happy about that. And and a little Masters pick, a little golf action. Jim Nance out there at Augusta National after the break. Jim Nance, happy holiday and welcome to CBS Sports' 49th year of documenting this tradition unlike any other. Hello, friends. Jim Nance, welcome to Butler Cabin and this tradition unlike any other. Welcome, friends. Jim Nance here in Butler Cabin. Welcome again to our tradition unlike any other. Welcome, friends, to this tradition unlike any unlike other. The any Masters other, on CBS for the 52nd consecutive year. Give me year. your picks, Hello, ben. friends. Jim Nance. Good old Jim Nance, of course, bringing us back in. Um, so there, there's really three plays that I'm eyeing this week at the Masters that uh, I really love. All right. So first of all, on FanDuel Sportsbook, great offer. Not sponsored. Please sponsor us. Go ahead. They should sponsor us, yes. Uh, great offer. Uh, bonus bets back if your golfer finishes in the top 20. So if you bet on a winner, if your guy finishes in the top 20, you get your money back. That's a pretty good promo for the week. That's fun. And, you know, if I'm eyeing one guy right now on the board that I love to win, um, and I, I'm still going to take him, you know, I think at every major until he wins one. Xander Shoffley is what a name. 25 to 1 right now, uh, 2,500 on FanDuel. I think that's really good value for a guy that's finished top three at the Masters twice in his career. And he's, he's, I, he's on my radar. I think he's definitely got a great chance to, uh, you know, uh, be in contention on Sunday and perhaps win this whole thing. Um, and, you know, in terms of, you know, you can bet on finishing positions, matchups. Oh, gosh, the, the, the bets are endless with golf. Uh, top three, or top three, excuse me, top ten. I'm um, I'm looking at, I, I would eye Justin Thomas top ten at plus 190. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's a good play. Um, Justin Thomas has a few majors under his belt. Um, he hasn't played his best at Augusta yet in his career, but he's definitely a, uh, a sneaky pick, I think, in terms of the, uh, the top tens. And then uh, finally for a top 20, this might surprise people a little bit, but I'm going to take Will Zalatoris at plus 125. Wow. To, to finish in the top 20. I don't know anything. I'm just saying wow. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, Will Zalatoris. For those of you who don't remember, he uh, was in a playoff with Justin Thomas at the PGA Championship last year after mm. Mito Pereira famous, famously uh, used a driver, clubbed it into the water on the 18th hole last year. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Will Zalatoris has really broken out on the PGA Tour. And he's he's a guy that's always, at least to me, on top of the boards um, when you get to the weekend. So I think Will Zalatoris is definitely a, uh, a good bet. But in case you're wondering where everybody's winning odds are. Yeah, where's uh, is Tony Finau going to play? Oh, yeah, Tony Finau will be playing. Tony Finau, he is, uh, I, I don't know anything, but he, he's my pick. Uh, okay. Are you, are you familiar with the Chris Vernon show? Uh, vaguely. Chris Vernon uh, does uh, Grind City Media down in Memphis, covers okay. the Grizzlies, covers Memphis. Uh, but he also... He does these hilarious Masters recaps. They all he gets all of his buddies and stuff. They're in like suits. He goes Tony Fee now where he be now. He he gets so <laughs> hype. If you're not following the Masters, follow Chris Vernon. See what he's doing. Uh, yeah. Not unsolicited. He just does great stuff. But uh, he he always does a great chant for Tony Fee now where he be now. So I, he's my pick. <laughs> I like that. 
Um, yeah, so where everybody's odds there are, though, on the winnings, uh, favorites, defending champ Scotty Scheffler, along with Rory McIlroy at the top at plus 700. John Rahm at plus 950. Scheffler and Rahm have arguably been two of the hottest golfers in the past year uh, on tour. No wonder why they have such short odds. And then it's really, those three are bunched at the top together, and then everybody else is farther down the list. Uh, Jordan Spieth, who's won this tournament um, uh, back in 2015, 1,700. Patrick Cantley, plus 1,800. Justin Thomas at 2,100. Your guy, Tony Finau, 2,400. Um, Xander Shoffley at 2,500, as I mentioned. And then the top guy from the Live Tour, Dustin Johnson, is at 2,500 as well. And some other notables, Max Homa, who's been hot on tour. He's got some juicy value. I would play him as well at 3,400. Will Zalatoris, 4,400. Brooks Kapka, who's also coming over from Live at 4,400. And then the 2021 champion, Hideki Matsuyama, at 4,600. And Peter, the headline, of course, uh, from the Masters is going to be all the PGA Tour guys versus all the Live Golf Tour guys. Uh, because, of course, for those of you who don't know or remember that Live Golf started in Saudi Arabia, or it's a Saudi Arabian-based uh, league that was started by Greg Norman last year. And this is the first major where all of the Live Golf guys will be back, crossed over with the PGA Tour guys. And the only reason that these guys are allowed to play in the majors is because they are not run by the PGA Tour. The Masters is run by... Augusta National Golf Club. The PGA is the PGA of America. U.S. Open is the USGA. And then the British Open is the RNA. So it's four different um, companies that mm. operate these major tournaments. So that's why we're going to be able to see these live golf guys back. And I'm very curious to see how the crowd reacts in Augusta. I mean, the Masters is one of those tournaments that there are a lot of rules. And I wish I had more time, but. It, it, there are some crazy rules the Masters, including you cannot have cell phones. Um, so I, I'm very curious to see how the patrons react uh, this weekend in Augusta. If if the live golf guys are toward the top of the board, that's going to be a story mm. to follow Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. But the Masters, Thursday through Sunday, uh, you can catch the coverage on ESPN, future, featured groups on ESPN Plus Thursday, Friday. Featured groups on ESPN Plus Saturday, Sunday, broadcast CBS. And uh, will you, uh, as we wrap up the show, Ben, bring us home with the stat star of the week. Well, of course, Peter. And, and of course, if you didn't realize already from the top, this was a pretty heavy-themed show about Huskies. And Well, they won. They won. They won right. on Monday night. That's it's right. pretty timely. Of course. And that means our stat star of the week has to be one uh, because it's Adama Sonogo because he's got that dog in him. Adama was front and center in the majority yes, of this NCAA tournament run for UConn. Averaged 19.6 points per game during all six of the team's games and had a double-double in four of them. He did this all while observing Ramadan for much of the past two weeks, not having a drop of fluid or bite of food in him during a few of these games, specifically the Arkansas and Gonzaga games, because out in Las Vegas, even though they were some later tip times, uh, it wasn't quite sunset. So Adama, Sun was still up there in Vegas. Sonogo had to wait until uh, halftime, really, of the Gonzaga game to eat anything, and I, I don't think he had anything in him during the entirety of the Arkansas game mm-hmm. uh, based off of the, the time of day. But I'll tell you one thing, pretty wild. Uh, Adama Sonogo, more like Adama Sonoko. <laughs> I, I still want one of those shirts. I'm very jealous. Yeah, Sonogo, a, a worthy pick. Uh, it seems like he was able to eat for the national championship, but still, uh, incredible by Sonogo, uh, an incredible run. Tristan Newton also. Uh, so, again, yeah, 
We'll be coming back probably with with a little Masters talk next week. Ben. Basketball capital of the world, though, baby. Stores, Stores Connecticut. Connecticut. Who would have known? And uh, as we as we wrap this up, thank you for being our friend. Catch you next week.